I'm Arlen Hamilton, and this is Your First Million. I'm a venture capitalist. I started my fund Backstage Capital from the ground up while I was on food stamps. I have now invested in more than 100 companies led by women, people of color, and LGBT founders. After having raised more than $10 million, people often ask me how I did it. I created this podcast so I could tell you my story and so that together we could go on a journey and speak with some of the most successful people in the world from all backgrounds and walks of life to learn how they got their first million. And who knows, maybe I'll reach my first million in personal capital while I'm recording this series. There's only one way to find out. Let's go. Welcome back to your first million. It's Arlen. I'm coming to you today from Washington, D.C., where I just went to the National Museum of African American Culture and History for the first time, and it's amazing. And I will be back. was able to speak there and, and have a really wonderful experience there. Today, we're releasing um one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Josh Wyatt. I'm going to start telling you about Josh by reading to you what he wrote on a Harvard MBA sort of uh, retrospective several years ago. I think this was in 2005, I want to say. He he mentions it in the in the interview what year it was, but it was it was 10 years or more. And he it says, I'll read the whole thing. One day I will welcome people as they check into my hotels. Okay, my hotel empire is but a single apartment right now. But one day I will be able to take care of people. People who come from all over the world with many different views, hopes, dreams, and desires. It is this diversity coupled with my desire to build a global family that leads me toward my future hotel empire. Some may view hotels as a place for rest for a night. I view them as a landscape, a canvas for the evening. My hotels would be a wide world under one roof. One day, I will teach my children what my parents could not teach me. It will be my honor, duty, and obligation to gently guide them as they develop their own character. I will rejoice as they discover life and see the world. My life's journey will serve as a roadmap to their learning, and I shall willingly give both my heart and soul to see them flourish. And one day, I will be old, wrinkly, and content and step into a final chapter of life well-lived. I wanted to read that because I think this episode is like no other that we've had. You're definitely going to hear the founder story. You're going to hear a story about money and about success and about struggle and all of those things. And definitely some, some current event market stuff because we get into WeWork and, and et cetera. But this episode, if you take a listen, let me just say this is not the time to skip my intro. <laughs> Some people probably skip the intro. I, I, I want to give you fair warning that a few minutes into this interview, Josh tells us something about himself and about his past that is quite shocking. And it is intense. And it will help you understand why he wrote 
what I just read to you several years ago as a young man before I believe he had children. And it'll help inform the rest of the conversation. So I want you to hear that and I want you to uh, be warned about that just because it, it, may, it may be a trigger for some people. Um, it's about something that happened to people in his family. So I want you to know about that and the fact that he is, uh, as you'll learn, gone on to massive success and in the millions and millions and millions when you value it in that way. And then also just seems like the part where he talks about being content, he's well on his way. I, I love this interview. I think it's, um, I think people are going to learn a ton from it. I learned a lot from it. I learn a lot from every interview I do, which is really my secret point of doing these interviews is kind of selfish. It's to learn and to grow and get this information before anybody else (laughs) and then to share that. So I hope you enjoy it. I cannot wait to hear your thoughts about it. And uh, here's Josh Wyatt, the CEO of Neuhaus. My name is Josh Wyatt. I'm CEO of Neuhaus. How would you describe Neuhaus? Neuhaus is a collective for the creative workspace and uh, creative community. Um, We're really focused and dedicated on ensuring a high-performance creative environment for all of our members. And you're in Los Angeles and New York, anywhere else to date? So we are currently actually sitting uh, very close to our flagship here in Hollywood. Uh, We also have a space in Madison Square in New York, and we are soon to open our third house in downtown Los Angeles in the iconic Bradbury building. Yeah. And I've been to the New York version the Hollywood version, certainly, because I live really close to it. And then the new one, if anyone's been to the Hollywood or the New York version, how would you describe the difference in the similarities in that new one? Sure. So, you know, something that we really focus on as a brand and equally, if not more importantly, as a, as a team is looking for and inhabiting iconic, architecturally significant buildings. I think, you know, we sit in an age where there tends to be a lot of building and growth and sort of growth at all costs that leads to products that's not necessarily spectacular, right? It's it's in many industries, whether it's fashion, food, real estate, consumer products, it, it's a very much of sort of a consumer oriented society that we've built, which I think is incredibly unsustainable. I'm not sure if we'll change the world at Neuhaus, but one thing we are doing is looking for really significant adaptable reuse buildings. So buildings that have been around for 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, and coming into those buildings and really working with the spirit of them. So by way of example, at Neuhaus Hollywood, it's the original CBS broadcasting studios from the 1930s, where William Paley founded CBS Broadcasting and went on to uh, produce and uh, film uh, or record incredible radio and music albums and TV. Uh, Bradbury, which is our latest one opening up a couple months from now in December, uh, is in an 1873 building designed by Sumner Hunt in downtown Los Angeles. It has a very, very strong history and provenance in the architectural community. More importantly, or equally importantly, it has a really strong track record and and personality in the entertainment world. It's where Blade Runner was filmed back in 1982. And 
if you look at the history of the building and how it has this juxtaposition of this like really strong architectural sort of masculine significance layering in the science fiction angle of Blade Runner, that's the vibe that it gives off. Um, from an interior design perspective, we're going to play around with different palettes and colors. So I think we'll have like a nice little sort of juxtaposition of moments there. Why is it called Neuhaus? I've always wondered and I haven't done the thing where you could do, you could Google it. <laughs> What's that from? I, I like that. I, I always think that... Uh, Avoiding Googling someone or something actually takes you back to learning and inquiring about something or yeah. someone uh, rather than sort of forming a preconceived notion about something. So I respect the, the anti-Googling stance. Um, so that allows me to describe what Neuhaus is. So uh, Neuhaus literally means home of the new. Um, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a German uh, pronunciation really going back to the uh, the period in Germany of expressionism and really looking at how intellectual communities were formed in the 1920s in Germany. Um, it was actually an incredibly interesting time in Germany where a number of artists, intellectuals, and uh, what I would call sort of the historic version of entrepreneur were together creating really interesting companies in a time and place where innovation was necessary. It was post-World War I. Um, there was not a lot of capital around. Um, Europe as a, as, a, as a continent was effectively destroyed by the war. Uh, and you saw this intellectual and artistic movement in pockets of Europe. Germany obviously was one country. Um, France was, was probably, I think, one of the larger or largest influences as well, um, where this foundation of creative expression was born. That's where, where Neuhaus really came to be, where you have this, this name of home of the new. Something new is always happening inside the four walls of Neuhaus from a brand perspective and from a member perspective, given the fact that we have about 1,500 incredibly interesting creative entrepreneurs, artists, intellectuals. What they do in their professional and personal lives is really drive forward the narration and the conversation around creativity. And that's something that inspires me personally as CEO of the business. Mm. You know, um, two things that brings to mind. One is that I guess when I was incorrectly calling it new house for the, for the first year, uh, I wasn't too far off. And the second is I should know that because my wife is German. We're going to have a long conversation about that later. Well, <laughs> so in fairness, hit. you wouldn't be the first person to, uh, to, to use a different pronunciation of the name. Um, and, and I sort of like that, you know, I think it's okay. Um, and, and in fact, actually it leads to a conversation point about being able to talk about the brand. Yeah. Because I mean, there are a lot of, I think people, most people listening to this podcast, I'd say half are in the LA, New York kind of coastal areas. And then the rest would be more in and flyover cities or whatever you want to call it and around the world. And so may not be familiar with Neuhaus or Soho house or the whole kind of that kind of world. And I know that there is a difference between that. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about ways to really connect it because when we spoke before, you said it wasn't necessarily a co-working spot. So how do you, how do you view it? If you had to describe it to someone, Let's say they're from Kansas, they're visiting LA for the first time. What, how did you describe it to them succinctly? Sure. So actually, let's use a real world city where I actually spent a lot of time. So let's use Indianapolis, yes. okay? Midwest, actually incredibly vibrant city with a big creative population there and a, and a big sort of historical importance to the United States. 
Um, although maybe you don't hear about that city every day now, um, I would argue actually a lot of those cities are really important. And it drives a creative narrative back to what Neuhaus is all about. So if you think about the creative process to actually successfully create something, whether it's a business, a movie, a music album, a piece of art, or a, a corporate organization, you need to have different inputs. And that is what Neuhaus is providing that is much more profoundly sort of layered than your typical co-working business. So yes, we have workspace. We have workspace that is private based on our membership uh, needs. We then have three or four different other inputs that really serve the needs of the member and the creative process throughout the day. So we have event spaces, we have uh, restaurant outlets, we have screening rooms, we have listening rooms, we have writing rooms, we have brand partnerships that bring interesting, provocative brands into the four walls of Neuhaus. And we also have a digital and media production platform that actually produces content, podcasts, movies, various uh, sort of intellectual programs that really, we believe, really drives for the conversation. Our view on having that diversified base is what we think is something very, very special. And really, I mean, we've looked around, like no one else is doing it at that scale. I mean, there are certainly some in, very interesting entrepreneurs out there that have a one-off property that may be doing one or two of those, but to do all those different things under one roof, I think is pretty, pretty profoundly interesting, actually. How do you see others in the ecosystem because i would be i would be kind of fake if i didn't bring up we work everybody's talking about we work right now yeah i also am really good friends with the people who run jane club and mm -hmm. the riveter jane clubs in in la uh now and riveter is all over the place and it's growing really fast um and they're part of our portfolio how do you look at I mean, do you even pay attention to what's going on at WeWork or how does that? I, I, well, I think it's impossible not to pay attention yeah. to WeWork because it's, you know, it's literally on the front page of every single media outlet in the world. So, you know, on the one hand, I tip my cap to uh, to the brand and, and the ability of Mr. Newman to have created something like that. It's just such a powerful tsunami um, within the industry. So my hat's off to that. I mean, I think that is a talent and a skill in and of itself in terms of promoting a brand, being able to raise billions and billions of capital. That's certainly a talent. Um, we focus on sort of what we can control. So I can't control what WeWork does. I can't control the positive or negative impact of what's happening with WeWork. Um, if I were to worry about that, I think it would take me away from what my purpose is from an individual perspective and what the purpose of the organization is and, and what our mission is. So I sort of focus on providing incredible member experience and a highly designed, iconic space for our members to meet in, to share a meal in, to do a podcast, to you know shoot a movie or screen a movie. That's what I can control. I can't control, you know, 20 other competitors out there trying to do what we're doing. And I, I think in this day and age, really almost anything can be copied. Anything can be mimicked. I mean, unless you're talking about maybe some extremely rare intellectual property. But if you're in the, in the business of hospitality or real estate uh, or retail, pretty much like 99% of things can, can be copied. What or inspired or by. Or inspired by, yes. right? And, and what I would argue is the only thing that really can't be copied is the soul, right? The soul and the heart of who is leading the team, what is the vision for the team, what is the vision for the brand? You you cannot, at least right now, I don't know, maybe 20 years from now you can, but you can't clone 
a leader. <laughs> you can't clone a a spirited vision of that entrepreneur. And you know, we'll, we'll segue into into the the primary topic of this podcast. But that is how you make your first million, right? Whether it's your own company or for someone else, you make your money and you make your value by having a distinct point of view and delivering on it. And and that's what we're trying to do. So my hats off to WeWork. My hats off to Jane or H Club or any of these other private members clubs or co-working spaces or you know let's call complementers in the space. Um, all I know is that we can wake up every morning focused on our purpose and our mission. And if we do a good to great job at that, then we think we'll have a very vibrant and long lasting brand and platform. Yeah, well said. I wanted to talk to you to, to kind of set the stage for what has become your life now because I think it's just absolutely fascinating um I, I don't I don't know how to, to to go into it but you you told me the story about the early parts of your life can you share that yeah with absolutely listener? so so my uh, my parents passed away when I was nineteen. Um, I grew up uh, in a, a relatively uh, affluent neighborhood, but in very poor circumstances. My parents had divorced uh, when I was six or seven, uh, and I grew up in a in a situation where my father, uh, you know, had not been a, a, a he was just not a good human being. And unfortunately, um, over many years of conflict. Um, it culminated in my father murdering my mother and then committing suicide when I was 19. This was in 1993. So this is many years ago. Uh, it was sort of pre-internet. You know, it was definitely pre-internet. It was pre-social media. It was all those things. Um, so it was a very different time in the world in terms of how to cope with and deal with that type of situation. It was a moment for me where it was definitely a survival moment. I mean, again, coming from a, a, a relatively poor or under, you know, let's call it lack of privilege background, um, you know, I was left with, you know, no, I, I'm an only child, so no brothers or sisters, no family. Uh, I think I inherited something like $8,000 from a very crappy life insurance policy. Uh, I guess my personal piece of advice is don't have an $8,000 life insurance policy. It's not going to get you too far. But, um, you know, I effectively, I had no money. I was, I was broke. I was on my own. Um, I, I did have some support network in the sense of a couple friends and my godparents. But uh, it, was, it was a life or death moment for me personally in terms of surviving and not letting the moment totally crush my spirit. And I remember just looking myself in the mirror that, that week after and really trying to sort of map out my life. And, and I did, maybe this is a good thing or a bad thing, but for me, it was a binary moment. Like I actually really did believe back then that you either make it or you don't when you're forced with dramatic life-changing moments. And it doesn't have to be as dramatic as that. It's a very dramatic story, but a dramatic moment could be, you know, you're faced with possible bankruptcy in your company. You're faced with not raising money and having to turn the lights on. You're faced with, you know, getting a divorce. You're faced with losing your partner. You're faced with crushing, crushing disappointment. You have a choice. You either can learn from that disappointment and say, you know, I'm not going to be defeated by this, or you can be defeated by it. And at that moment, I knew, you know, again, I mean, this was, you know, I was 19 years old. I was a freshman in, in college. I knew that I had one great life to live. And, and it was actually, you know, without being... I mean, I certainly didn't shy away from being terribly sad uh, or having deep sense of grief and, and depression for some time. However, I also knew deep down 
in those quiet moments that I actually had a great opportunity to lead a pretty amazing life if I gave myself the opportunity to do so. That doesn't mean that everything's always rosy and I've had a lot of ups and downs just like anyone. Um, but I do believe that the struggle is worth it and it brings with great struggle brings great opportunity and great results. I mean, that's just, it, it blows my mind. You know, it's incredible. And there are probably pockets of people listening who, like most people are not going to have that sort of background. God, as much I as we not. talk, <laughs> yeah. I hope not either. Yeah. But as much as we talk about having the disadvantage, most people are not going to have that to come from. But there will be some who do, who have something that, that they feel like they're, that they're relating to right now. When you had that moment in the in the mirror, you you kind of gave yourself an ultimatum. You said, "I, can, I did, yeah. yeah." And then, what did the next couple of years look like for you? Because what I know of you now, I don't know much. What I know of you now is that you've made a really good living for yourself when it comes to quote unquote the capital that you have or that you're able to wield. But what happened after that moment in the mirror? So I, I think I think it's instructive when you deal, and and there's there's no right answer here, but I'll, I'll give you my perception of what the right sort of path is when you're when you're dealing with loss or disappointment. I think before you make any big decisions in life, either way, you got to sort of slow things down a bit and try to build back a foundation of strength and courage and conviction. So for me, what that meant is two to three years after that moment of learning everything I could do, everything I could do to learn, right? So for me, that meant I'd never really traveled before. So I was able through my university to travel extensively around the world through scholarships and uh, work abroad, study abroad. So I spent, you know, three years, literally, you know, I went to probably five different continents. Uh, I learned French, I learned Spanish. I took time to really, really sort of slow down and learn as much as I could about the world and about myself. And in doing that, it started, I, it took me years to realize this, but it created foundational building blocks of my personality that has served me very well in my 30s and 40s. So, you know, I was 19, 20, 21, 22. Um, it was learning those sort of key life experiences that you can't get in a textbook and you can't get at a university. Um, you get it through experience and through interacting with other people and seeing other cultures. And I, I think it's hard to do in this day and age with technology and social media, but back then it was much easier. You slow everything down, you learn, it's, it's a much slower process. and. Maybe I didn't go as fast as other people, but in my 30s and 40s, I look back on some of the things that I did in my early 20s, and it really, really helped me. So, you know, today, as CEO of Neuhaus, there are things that I'm able to talk about with our members that I genuinely experienced 20 years ago in France or Spain or Chile or Africa or wherever I traveled or lived that served me well in being a CEO. It served me well in how I interact and, and raise capital. I'll give you a, like a real-time anecdote. I had lunch today with one of my main shareholders who's from Australia. Given the fact that I was able to travel to Australia when I was younger and really learn what Australia was all about, allowed me to have a much more intimate and focused conversation with, with my shareholder today than if I had just never really knew what was happening over in, in that area of the world. So for me, that was my education. That was what really created the building blocks of, of where I am today. And again, it doesn't, you know, my, my personal story is extreme, but I think anyone can learn from that, right? Anyone has disappointing loss. Like there are moments, especially when you're younger, when you're unsure of yourself, you don't have the experience, you don't have the conviction. And a lot of us don't have the role models, unfortunately, to tell us when we're wobbling, right? You, you have this moment of indecision. And, and again, 
let's just be, let's look at everyday normal life. Like there, there is crushing disappointment in every day. You could go ask someone on a date and they say, no, you know what, when you're 19, that can be like devastating, right? But there are just those times where you have to say, okay, I'm just going to take it slow. I'm going to really focus on like doing things that really make me a better person intellectually, morally, uh, socially. And, and I think you'll get there, you know, and that to me, I, I think there's different trajectories to success. You know, you, you look at your story and and your ability to raise capital and pull off what you've been able to do at a much younger age than than me you know i think that that route is equally powerful to, as to taking the longer road as well like well not too you know, terribly younger well, I, I, no, i'm but probably I mean, older than you think i am <laughs> <laughs> no but i mean it you know the the trajectory to success i think I, one of the one of the criticisms i have i think especially of american society i think it's a little bit less acute of a problem in in europe but I, I think people are too fixated on fast growth, fast success, right? And again, I think it is an age of the media age we live in, whether it's social media or entertainment media. We don't all have to be a billionaire or, or a millionaire in this case by the time you're 25. You don't have to be a self-starting entrepreneur at 22. You can do it at 32. You can do it at 42. You can do it at 52. Going to the earlier topic on WeWork, and I don't want to talk too much about, uh, about WeWork, but you could say like, their fixation on growth and success at all costs maybe sort of got them where they are today. Yeah. Not so sure that's like the long-term sustainable way of doing things. So, you know, I, I, I do believe that there's different routes to success, but that sort of calm, measured way is not necessarily a bad way to go. It's a very inspiring um, take on life because what it reminds me of is you said it doesn't, it, it can be anyone. You can maybe jump in a car and kind of go across the U.S. or go across what your country um, that you're in. And I, I think there'd be a lot of merit in meeting people in little towns and, and, and having that back up. I, um, this is a weird, uh, side note, but I, at one point I set out on a quest to meet 10,000 people in person. That's cool. And, uh, there's a whole story to that and it was life changing. It yeah. really was. And it was very slow and it was very, it was, uh, completely different than I thought it was going to be. And it was really interesting. So there's a, there's a lot of merit in, surrounding yourself with other people and uh, experiences. So you go on this journey and you come back a couple of languages richer <laughs> and a lot of experiences richer. Did you know what you wanted to do in, in business at that point? Like, in, you know, mid-20s, late-20s. It's interesting. I think it's really important for any younger person just starting out to ask themselves, what goals generally make you happy, but not to fixate on specific sort of industry focal points? Because I, I, I mean, unless you're like truly, truly gifted, you're like a gene, you're an amazingly talented athlete, or you're a genius violin player, or, you know, you've been making movies since you've been 14. There, there are, you know, maybe 1% of the population you know, was sort of born to do something and they knew it at 10 years old and God bless them. That's great. The majority of us, including myself, are not blessed with that. And it takes a lot of time and some dabbling and some mistakes, I think, to really find your true calling. So what I was more, and I, I actually, I, I don't think this is like revisionist history. I actually was, I think, pretty self-aware in my early 20s. I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do professionally, but I knew the type of role that I wanted, which was one of collaboration and leadership. Like I, I just, I always wanted to be a leader. I think if you look through what I did when I was like a young kid, whether it was a six-year-old up to like an 18-year-old, 
if you were to take one pattern in all that, it would have been being a leader in an organization, whether it was captain of the soccer team or baseball team or Eagle Scout, student body president, homecoming king. Like those are all things that they were leadership moments, but it wasn't something that I said, hey, I really want to be this. I really yeah. want to be student body president. It was more like, hey, I just want to, I want to follow that track. So in business, it was the same way. I actually didn't have a passion for a particular business in my 20s, but I knew that I wanted to be a leader. And so I took a job, my first job out of college, which was definitely boring, which was a management consultant job. And I knew that I wanted to get the skills because I didn't really know what business I wanted to go into, but I'm like, okay, consulting is for a general. And then I got bored after a year. I'm like, okay, now I want to be a leader. So I started a company uh, in the education space. And that to me was, I didn't care what I was doing in my 20s. I wanted to lead and I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And that, that opportunity, I did it for five years. I built a company with three other partners um, in the education consulting space. And we took it from, you know, zero, zero revenue and, and uh, clients to a peak of about six or seven clients, 30 employees, about 5 million of revenue and about a million and a half of EBITDA. Small, but it was still, it was good in, in, the, in the late 90s. And then I sold it uh, in, in 2003 and I went to Harvard Business School. But that leadership focal point was what really drove me for the majority of that time in that company. And then I burned out and I'm like, okay, I've done what I can do and now mm -hmm. I want to go back to school. And, and, and what a training it. ground. I mean, you say small, but for some people, being able to build a company that has 5 million in revenue each year is, is a big deal and it's a great jumping off point. Yeah, I, I think being a leader, it doesn't matter what job you have. If you know that you want to, you, you may say to yourself, I want to be a leader or I want to be a follower. And by the way, being a follower is not a bad thing. I think unfortunately in the US, like we talk a lot about, um, you know, you got to be a leader, got to be a leader. Being a great follower is a very powerful thing, actually. And yeah. it's funny, at Harvard, at Harvard Business School, they talk about leadership. That's like the big thing there. It's like, you know, the, 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 the sort of cliche is if you want to really be a hardcore finance person, go to Wharton. If you want to be an entrepreneur, technology leader, go to Stanford. And if you want to be like a generic general manager leader, go to Harvard. But which is... <laughs> Ooh, you're going to have some fighting words. Those are fighting words. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, well, I mean, we got it all the time, right? Yeah. And, and, and it was a criticism of, of HBS. But I, I think, you know, for me at HBS, one of the classes that I took was called The Quiet Leader. And what they taught you in that class was, you know, being number two and being supportive yes. is good, you know, and, and that's something that I learned there. Um, and coming out of HBS, then I knew I, I did have a passion at that point for real estate and I've stuck in real estate since then. And, and it's something that is really, I think in your thirties, you do have to find your passion because life gets really, really tough in your thirties and forties with respect to time. So in your mm -hmm. 20s, you can dabble a lot. I think in your 30s and 40s, I'm making a massive generalization, but I'm gonna I'm going with go for it. I'm going with what I know. That's because, what a leader does. <laughs> but but you know, your 30s and 40s, as you get older, your time becomes way more precious. You know, you have more responsibility typically. Um, you have a little bit less energy typically than your 20s. I'm again, I'm stereotyping, but hey, that, I'm here to amen that. You know, it's been for me for sure. Like there's a little bit of declining energy curve. And then a lot of people have families or partners or whatever, or obligations um, that just take way more time. So you, you sort of have to be in love with something professionally, I think, to get the most out of what you're doing. And, and that, you know, I give advice all the time to people 
uh, when they come to me and say, you know, what should I do? And I sort of, I do look at them and I take a view on where they are in their life. If they're in their twenties, my advice would be go do something that puts you in a position of leadership where you can make mistakes and have accountability, right? So if you don't hit your P&L, that means someone's going to lose money and you get fired. That's a good position to be in your 20s. Like you should be sort of scared every morning you wake up saying, I got a P&L, I got a capital structure, I have employees that depend on me. That's a great, great sense of responsibility. In your 30s, I would, 30s and 40s, I would say, do something that you love because when the going gets tough, you can fall back and say, I'm so passionate about this, like I'm not going to give up. I mean, I'll give you a good example. Today was a really tough day for me. We're in the middle of a big fundraise. I'm meeting with investors. There's the WeWork story, which is going through the rippling through the market right now. I'm getting pushed in a m many different ways, but it was a tough day. It was yeah. definitely a tough day. And, you know, there's moments that if I wasn't totally in love with the industry I'm in, if I didn't totally respect Neuhaus as a brand, and frankly, probably the most important thing is if I didn't have total loyalty and commitment to my team members, my executive team, maybe I'd give up a little bit, you know, maybe yeah. I would work a little bit less hard. Maybe I'd care a little bit less. You know, it was one of those days where I'm like, wow, I just don't have my A game today. Um, I didn't, you know, I don't, uh, although maybe I'm feeling better now. It's almost the end of the day, but that passion for the brand and, the, and most importantly, the passion for my team and wanting to see my team succeed with me, right? is sort of what gets me through the day when I have days where I'm not maybe on my, my total A game. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm doing a little experiment, as you may have seen online recently. I want to incentivize you to leave a comment on Apple Podcasts and also give you a little gift for doing so, for taking the time out. I want you to leave an authentic review for your first million on Apple Podcasts. And when you do so, send me a message. You can DM me on Instagram. Arlen was here. A-R-L-A-N was here on Instagram. You can reach out to me by email or you can DM me on Twitter. Same handle. Arlen was here. Let me know your t-shirt size, your mailing address, and your full name. And let me know that you filled out a review for your first million on Apple. Right now it's for Apple only. And once you do that, we'll take your information down and we'll get a shirt out to you over the next few days. All right, everybody. Looking forward to seeing you in those shirts. So you exit a company that you built with partners, and that was in the education space. You found in your, you say in your 30s, you, you spent in the real estate space. And did that have something to do with all of the travel you did? <laughs> yeah, so I, we're probably very similar. I think, you know, you, you can sort of see a kindred spirit yeah. a mile away. But, you know, it's funny in, when you're building a company, especially if it's marketing or, or a consumer retail product or definitely a technology product, you talk about a use case, right? What's your use case? Got to do a use case. What better use case uh, in the real estate and or hospitality space than a founder or a professional in that space who literally lived in a hotel for five years straight, right? Yeah. Which is which is probably what we both have done. You know, my my late twenties and early thirties before we sold the company, I, I think I was on the road for two hundred and fifty two straight weeks, and I there was two years of those five years that I didn't have an apartment. I was just bouncing from hotel to hotel. So I got to know the hotel space through the use case side of things, the customer side, and I became very passionate about it because when you're so immersed in in an experience and you start to see the flaws in it. And so I, when I went back to Harvard, I said, um, to get my MBA, I said, you know what, I'll be 31 when I graduate. I sort of have one big shot to make a big, big sort of splash. 
And so I'm going to focus from the moment that I get out on redefining what the hotel industry looks like. And I sort of knew my calling. I mean, you know, talking about passion and focus, I, I did feel in my 30s I had to focus and I knew what I wanted to focus in. And, and it, if you actually go back, going to our opening talk about Googling someone, actually, if you do Google me, one of like the cheesy, you know, online interviews from like 2005, the, the graduating class, they pick like 30 students who are, you know, sort of interesting case studies at Harvard and they interview I think they call it like the legacy project or something like that. And they interview them. They say, you know, give, give, give a quote. How would you like to be seen by people? And I, I think I literally say, you know, I look forward to the day that people check into my hotels one day. Mm. You know, it was one of those sort of optimistic quotes, but it was true. It, it ended up happening. I started with a private equity firm and right after a week after graduating in 2005. And that firm was uh, a great firm, very small at the time, called Patron Capital. And founded by an incredible, incredibly energetic and brilliant real estate and and hospitality investor. And he was kind enough to give me the bandwidth and sort of capital to go play a bit. And I took it and he said, look, he said, I actually don't know if I believe in you or not. So you got six months. If you don't do a deal, I'm going to fire you. But go learn about the industry. Here's, you know, you have you have a Rolodex through Harvard. You have my Rolodex. Like, let's see what you can create. And through through some luck and some some hard work, obviously, I was able to come up with some ideas about changing the hotel industry and what would really what would be impactful to the most amount of travelers, uh, you know, in a space that doesn't really have that much innovation. So I came up with this concept of design led hostels. Hmm. Um, and fast forward to 2016, 17, when the company finally sold, it's called Generator. So we, we started that. We actually bought the name and bought a property in London. And then we, we ended up doing 14 generators in 10 countries uh, and, and 12 cities. It was an incredible run. Um, and we, it was a half a billion dollar company. So we sold in May of 17 for $550 million, which was wow. a pretty cool, it was a pretty cool run. I'm going to I'm going to first tell you this so that I don't doesn't sound like I'm copying anything because I don't know anything about generator. When I was younger, I had all these ideas, of course. I came up with Uber mm-hmm. and I came up with DoorDash. And I even tried DoorDash. I even did it uh, for a while, but that's a whole other story. But one of the ideas I had for a long time was because I toured so much with indie bands mm-hmm. and we would, you know, be in a van or some sort of thing. We'd go to these gas stations, we'd go to these different hotels and it was like a Motel 6 and things like totally. that. Totally, yeah. I thought, how cool would it be to have a very, uh, have the same kind of hostel, because I'd been in a European hostel before, the same kind of hostel that catered to the traveling musician. Mm-hmm. And so everywhere, everyone you went to, you could get a band room. So four bunk beds or whatever, and it could be a band room and you could have like a tour manager room, like a mm-hmm. little tiny room, like Citizen M, if you've ever been mm-hmm. in one of those. And it also had washer dryer. It also had beer on tap. It also had these little things that made it very musician friendly. And then it had rehearsal space mm-hmm. and it was going to be called 360. It's cool. It's a good idea. And go boom, boom, boom. I'm assuming this is not the same, but what what made it a lifestyle design led hostile experience. So so all of those ideas and opportunities and in some ways customer pain points all existed 15 years ago when when we are 14 years ago when we first sort of came up with the idea which was if you look at high design lifestyle hotels they have some really interesting things that are special about them. The minute you walk into the lobby if it's done correctly 
you get butterflies in your stomach. Mm. You see that design moment. And even if you don't know anything about interior design, if the designer is good, they create a visceral emotional sense right away. It may, it may surprise you. It may excite you. It may turn you on. It may stimulate you. It may scare you. But it creates a, you, you feel it. Like you may sweat a little bit. You feel the butterflies in your stomach. Um, no one had ever done that in the budget space. No one had ever like designed a hostel where you walk in and you're like, oh my God, I can't, what am I seeing here? This is insane. Yeah. So that was the first, the first angle. The second angle was the lack of really, really good, well-designed, killer, fun, and importantly, safe bars and restaurants for people on a budget did not exist either. So your options were fast food, which is frankly disgusting and just really environmentally destructive. Uh, and, and I mean, that's a whole nother debate, but um, your fast food, uh, uh, bad uh, alcohol selections, no curation. And oftentimes in, especially in European cities, like it's expensive, like the value for money is really, really bad. So we looked at those two pain points and said, wait a minute, if we can provide this for 18 to 28 year olds, and this is before the word millennial existed, this mm. two, remember it's 2006, like millennial didn't actually really come onto the scene until about 2010. So we're like, there's all this innate pent up demand for really interesting experiences. If we can provide that at scale, because the only way to make money to do this, you gotta do it at scale. If you can provide that at scale, wouldn't it be amazing? Like my mission and vision was to actually be sort of the world's largest introducer of design-led and elevated food and beverage to the millennial mindset. And again, this was before millennials existed. So it was to the youth travel segment. Yeah, and then to what it, you had just then, been. Yeah, exactly. You right? had just come out of being exactly. a 28-year-old yeah. and you wanted to cater exactly. to them. So, so like, there's a certain respect that that sounds like there was there. For sure. I mean, like we, we I always thought I tried to, communicate this to my staff and certainly to the press, but it would, it would be no greater pleasure than to introduce high design concepts and the, you know, interesting food, interesting beverage to that 20 year old who's so inspired that 20 years later, 10 years later, they're doing a podcast talking about how they were inspired by generator and they went on to do their own hotel or become a hotel executive or become mm -hmm. a real estate developer. That was a lot of what drove it. I mean, we, at the peak of our business, we had 3 million millennials going through the properties every year. Incredible. Um, it's actually probably more now. The company that bought Generator for $550 million just bought Freehand, which is down in LA and New York for $400 million. So mm -hmm. they now have a billion dollar company. Um, you know, it's now, the, it's now without a doubt the largest millennial travel business in the world. Um, that's a cool legacy. Like if you think about people that are flowing through those properties, they may, or may never know who the interior designer is, but I got to believe that there's one or 2% of the, of the customers every night that walk in there and say, wow, like I just never, never thought about design this way. Yeah. There's you know? a song, there's songs being written. There's, there's, it's, totally. you wanted, to, it sounds to me like everything you've done since your teenage years has been about being someone's muse. Or yeah, or, I, or, or maybe maybe, maybe I have a lot of muses and they inspire me. Yeah. I, I actually don't know if I'm, you know, and, and I don't say this as being like sort of self-deprecating or false, right. but I don't view myself as like a deeply creative person. I view myself as a conduit for creative well, people. Well, yeah, catalyzing right? those a, a catalyst. experiences yeah. for yeah. people. When, when it was at its height, Generator, how many locations did you say it had? So we had 14 locations in 10 countries and 12 cities. And the peak, we were doing about 80, 
mid 80s, but called about 85 million euros of revenue and about 28 million euros of EBITDA. And how long did it take you to get to that point when you started to that moment? Yeah, I mean, it was nine years, which yeah. is a long time. I mean, real estate is a little bit different from technology or, or retail. To build a proper private members club like Neuhaus or a hotel or, or a really sort of massive, you know, food and beverage outlet. It takes like two years. And the first two that you do, first two or three that you do will take you five years to do mm -hmm. those first three. And then you'll start to be maybe be able to do two per year and you start to sort of catch up. But it's a long, long road. That road does not reward people who are impatient. Yeah, It's different from technology. You think about technology where you have this hyperscale moment where maybe it takes you two to four years to get to that level. But, you know, boom, once the network effect hits, like your scale starts to really hockey stick. And so, you know, five or six years, you could have a multi-billion dollar company or your user growth goes from 20 million to 100 million in three years. And just, you know, like you saw with Snapchat and some of these other ones, real estate's different. You, you have structural impediments to that type of hyperscale. That's one of the reasons why I looked at WeWork and you sort of, you look, you're like, well, interesting. I'm not sure if that's really supportable. Yeah. And I could give some other examples. I, I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but I, I do think that building special product that stands the test of time takes time. Well, it does. You and know? and you say nine years is, a, nine years is, in my opinion, in my late 30s, nine years is not a long time to create half a billion dollars in value and however many experiences and correct me if i'm wrong it still exists right oh yeah it's yeah. so you you've built a, also a sustainable company that still exists and still serves people today well i think one, one of the and i can't remember it was it was a, a really interesting hospitality ceo i just i'm forgetting his name but we were talking about what does success look like i was this is probably right after we sold generator and i was probably being a little bit arrogant um, I'm like, yeah, we sold for 550 million and isn't great. And, you know, we all, all meeting the private equity firm and a couple of the executives made some money and we sort of sit back and I'm like, oh, it's great success. And he looked at me, he's like, that's not a success. He's like, that's a financial transaction. He's mm -hmm. like, what a success is, is looking back on the real estate, the design, the buildings and the organization that you build and seeing if it's around 10 years later, right? That's a success. So I look at generator today it's been about two and a half years since we sold it. The buildings are still there very much so. It's still very much in the press. It just gobbled up a competitor of Generator in freehand, which now it's now a billion dollar company. Like that's a success and, yeah. and that's a legacy. Sure, there could have been things I would have liked to have done differently with the company. But the reality is, is that brand will be around. And if not the brand, certainly the buildings will be around for the next 30 years. There's no question about it. I mean, those buildings that we built with the design and the locations and the physical structure of adaptive reuse, it's built to last. And after that exit, you then, did you think you were going to do something big like Neuhaus? Or were you kind of saying, okay, th that was my my big thing and now I'm going to yeah, so do something else? I, there, there's, you know, there's sort of like, I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, the movie, um, The Social Network, you know, yeah. where, where Justin Timberlake is like, yeah. you know, you know, it's really cool. You mean Sean Parker. Yeah, it's Sean Parker. Yeah. <laughs> so Sean, you know, you know, it's really, you know, is you know, whatever, a hundred million dollars you think is cool, but a billion dollars is cool. I'm not fixated on money, but I'm fixated on legacy. So building a half a billion dollar company is cool, but doing it again, that is really interesting. Like I have the most amount of respect for the entrepreneurs or venture capitalists that are not one hit wonders. So Generator is a great success. There's no question about it. But 
I still feel like I have imposter syndrome. Like I wake up every morning saying, you know what? I have a lot still to prove. Mm -hmm. And if I am lucky enough and blessed and successful enough to take Neuhaus to the same level where we have 10 amazing Neuhauses in, let's call it, we're not as internationally focused, but let's call it, we get to three countries and we have six or seven cities uh, and we build a half a billion dollar company on that basis and we change some lives, you know, yeah. we, we inspire companies to be created. We inspire entrepreneurs and artists and musicians and uh, showrunners and screenwriters and scientists and, and creators to really change the world. Like that to me is what I'm really focused on. And once I hit my fifties, if I pull that off, then, then maybe I'm done. Right. Then I can say, okay, I sort of made it. I, I don't feel like in any way that I've made it. Like I'm still extremely hungry. So I took a year off after Generator sold. And I think that was a mistake looking back on it. Well, I didn't take a full year off. I started to raise capital and I was looking around for other opportunities. But again, I was probably arrogant. I look back and I say, you know, I, I had this great legacy. I'm the man, you know, I mean, I'm, that's not my personality. I don't think I would think that way, but you felt a little I, I bit felt, like you had, I felt you, like I had gotten there. I'm like, okay, yeah. great. You know, maybe I'll take the foot off the pedal a little bit. Like I'll relax, you know, I'll do this. And I, I think looking back on it, if I could have done things differently after that exit, I, I probably should have taken a month off and said, okay, like, let me really take this very special time, almost like a sabbatical and be much more intellectually focused. I finally got to it. So it all worked out in the end, but I probably lost some time celebrating a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. So I, I really respect, you know, you look at the entrepreneurs, this name won't ring a bell at all to, to your listeners. But if you go back to like Silicon Valley history, Dave Duffield, who was the founder of PeopleSoft, he then went on we to- got a lot of interesting uh, listeners. You'd so, be surprised. I mean, he's old school, but he's from like, you know, the 80s and 90s in Silicon Valley. I don't even know, you know, how, how far back people remember. But, you know, I, I when I was out as a consultant, Dave Duffield was the, was the first client I worked for in Silicon Valley. And, you know, he went on to sell PeopleSoft, I think for like $7 billion to Oracle. And then he went on to create another company. I can't remember the name of it, but he basically has created $3 billion companies, right? Mm -hmm. That is a legacy. That is cool, right? And you see a lot of entrepreneurs out there who get lucky. I mean, I do believe that a lot of, a lot of wealth creation is luck, especially the first time. Like you hit the cycle, right? You, get a, you have one great idea, right? Everyone has one great idea in them for sure. There's no doubt. And if you're lucky enough, maybe you have the, a DoorDash and an Uber in you. And mm -hmm. I, I have a friend who literally has created... YouTube, Facebook, WeWork. Oh, I forgot about YouTube. And, and, and Bitcoin. This guy has- I created YouTube too. Yeah. I mean- Forgot about that. I have a friend like that. And he is, he is the world's best idea generator. But it's about doing. But it's about doing an yes. execution. And he probably has created $100 billion worth of ideas. Yeah. But he hasn't been able to fully execute on them. So I think, look, it's like music, right? Mm -hmm. You're, anyone can create a breakthrough album, right? How many breakthrough albums have there been? It's that second and third album that's really, really hard. So you look at- you pick your favorite musician, but I mean, what is your favorite musician actually? Janet. Okay, great. Janet Jackson. So she's been around. She's for, a legend. She's a legend. And she's been around for now 30 years yep. creating hits and still doing it, you know, and you, and you look at some of her peers, Jennifer Lopez is another good example, yeah. you know, Lionel Richie. They reinvent you know, themselves as well. They, they don't just keep going. They reinvent yeah, themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even like Ma way. even Madonna. You know, it's funny, like people criticize Madonna. I mean, she's playing a, a two-week set at the Wiltern right down the street from here. I mean, that's awesome. It's, <laughs> I'm a, it's not amazing. criticizing that. You know, I <laughs> mean, it's like, I mean, it's it, I, to me like that, you look and you extrapolate that back to business. Yeah. 
creating multiple companies where you have true exits. It's not just up rounds. Like it's yeah. not like, hey, I just got valued, you know, great. I got, I'm in series E and I'm at, you know, it, it's <laughs> I'm like- worth $50,000 yeah, billion. Dollars. It's like, what is the real exit? And mm -hmm. I, I'm proud, I mean, I've looked at, I've, you know, two companies directly, one before Harvard and then Generator. And then I was responsible for four other portfolios in the private equity fund. Three out of the four of those portfolios sold and did very, very well. I had one bad deal in my career. So I have one bad deal and, and I have, you know, one home run and I have three good outcomes. And I think, you know, I think the measure of success is how many times can you do it? Yeah. Right? Not, do you feel like you you're once. competing with yourself or is there anyone else that you're competing with? I actually don't use the word anymore competition in terms of my own personal lens. It's a very dangerous game. So you start comparing yourself to your peers, keeping up with the Joneses, like you start doing it, like whether it's your friend peer set, your school peer set, even your romantic peer set, like you start looking at couples that you hang out with. And yeah, several episodes of Friends are about just that. Yeah, right. Yes. And that's life. And, <laughs> and I, I do, you can't, you'll never be able to win that game. You, so you then can't. what do you, what would you say? inspires you each day? I think it goes back to the earlier point that I made, which is creating a legacy for my multiple constituents that I deeply care about every day. So I do wake up in the morning, just like this morning, it was actually acute, uh, very, very acute. Maybe it's the full moon. I don't know. It's the energy. Yeah. I wake up and then when I think about Neuhaus, right, or when I was thinking about Generator, I thought about my shareholders. Okay. What am I doing to maximize my shareholder value? I then think about my employees. Are my employees happy? Are they fulfilled? Are they challenged? And if they're messing up, are they disciplined? And disciplined for the sake of making them better, right? It's, it's for really the, the betterment of their own career. I think about my members or customers equal in equal measure to my employees. Am I delivering on the promise to my employees? And then I think about my partners, my deep and inspired longtime collaborator at Neu at Neuhaus and also a generator is Anwar Mikhaish of Design Agency. So I think about people like that. You know, he's a friend, uh, he's a collaborator. I deeply respect him and his partners and his shop. So I think about my partners fourth, that's my fourth constituency. And then my fifth constituency is the markets. It's what's happening with messaging. It's what's happening with some of the decisions that we're making that have reverberations throughout the marketplace, not only from an investor perspective, but from a social enterprise perspective. So, you know, we're doing serious stuff at Neuhaus, just like I was doing serious stuff at Generator. Like I took that moral obligation very seriously. You know, Neuhaus, we're dealing with serious, serious social issues, serious cultural issues. We, Neuhaus was the first group to ever screen surviving R. Kelly as a perspective. Mm. Okay, No one else had screened it. That was a big seminal moment. Like that kicked off like the entire press cycle of that. You know, R. Kelly called Neuhaus and shut down the screen with a gun threat. Okay, mm -hmm. we got cleared out. We were in page six. A Hollywood reporter was crazy. That's a moral obligation. Yeah, he's I, trash, by the yeah. way. I'd just like to go on record and say that. Absolutely. Continue. But that's why we did the screening. No one else yeah. would do it, by the way. This was before it blew up. No one's like, what's surviving? Okay, we, we're not going to screen it. Yeah. And we screened it, right? We've done, and we've, and I could use 10 other examples of that yeah. in my house. And we just had the, we had the Planned Parenthood fundraiser on a Saturday last weekend or two weekends ago. That's what drives me. It's creating a legacy of those various constituencies so that when this is all said and done, when I hang it up or get hit by a bus, knock wood, um, knock wood you know, <laughs> that I leave the, those five groups in a better place. That's professionally. And then personally, it goes without saying, I mean, it's a pretty obvious statement, like. 
my my family and my children first and then my friends second. My obligation, you know, and no one's a perfect parent, but my obligation is to give as much as I can to my kids so that they grow up with the right attitude and the right training. I'm less focused on their financial well-being. I mean, they will have what they need to have, but I want them to have great education, great nutrition, and just a sound moral upbringing. Whatever, you know, whatever moral upbringing that is from my moral compass, I mm-hmm. want to imbue that onto them. You want to be everything that you didn't have. Yeah, and more, right? And more, you know, absolutely. Trying to, trying to look at, you know, I, I think I think the people that grew up in broken homes always have, if you make it, you sort of know what you want to be. And, and I think they're probably end up being the best parents. Yeah. Do you, have you heard that? It was a tweet. So I don't know where it came from, but it it said it like for like a month I was shook. I couldn't I couldn't deal with it. But it said that you the adult in you. Let me get this right. The adult in you, you do things as an adult that would have saved your parents. And in your case, I mean, I can't. I can't. We can't yeah. be more clear there. Yeah, I think that that's a pretty powerful statement. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna take that to. Definitely take that home and think about it. I mean, I think we, you know, I don't know. I I think we all have this like obligation to try to do things that should profoundly shift the conversation into a more positive place. Well, um, I got a lot from this talk and I know people listening have. I want to thank you so much for joining me. And uh, I can't wait to see what's next. How do people find out more about Neuhaus and you? So, um, you know, please look us up, you know, at Neuhaus.com. Uh, Go ahead and or, spell it just in case people yeah, are in the it's car. N-E-U-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. So Neuhaus.com uh, or Neuhaus on Instagram. And uh, my Instagram handle is the real Josh Wyatt. Uh, which my publicist keeps saying I have to change. But um, <laughs> I, I actually, believe it or not, I'm not a huge social media person, um, although I understand the power of it. But uh, I like to see other people shine. So. Yeah. so the number one city that listens to this podcast is Los Angeles. Very cool. The second is New York. Mm-hmm. Great. That means that a lot of you can go check out a Neuhaus location right now. Yeah, come visit us. Uh, go online and uh, you know, apply for membership. And, uh, you know, please be in touch. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, so I'd love to talk to you and keep the conversation going. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at Arlen was here. That's A-R-L-A-N was here. Stick around too, because I will let you know when my new book is going to be in pre-order. Now that's coming out in uh, 2020. It'll be out as the real book. Oh my goodness. And... It'll be, you'll be able to pre-order it most likely this year. So stay tuned. I'll let you know all about that on Twitter, on Instagram, and on this podcast. 